Hello everybody, this is Dan Woods talking to you today on the Designing Enterprise Platforms podcast of Early Adopter Research. I'm here with Dan Seltzer, who's going to talk to me today about modern data architectures. And of course, the words modern data architecture have been used by certain vendors to mean certain things, but today we're really talking about the transition from the data architecture that we've known, which is based on SQL databases, sometimes SQL data warehouses, uh, and using a variety of infrastructure on top of those. Or I think we can also you know, group in you know, large file systems like Hadoop into those. And this has all been changed by the cloud. It's been changed by new computing architectures. And there's a new uh, modern data architecture that's, that's coming up. And I just wanted to talk to Dan today about uh, uh, what that is and how he sees it developing. So, so thanks for being with me, Dan. Thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Dan, you have had a variety of roles as a CTO. For people who don't know you, as I do, um, I would say that your career has been essentially as an, a very engineering-oriented CTO who's been involved in many different kinds of activities from consulting firms to product-based um, uh, startups to you know being involved in the belly of the beast of the large enterprise. <laughs> Um, uh, uh, how would you describe you know your expertise in your career? Uh, Thirty-seven years of building things at increasing levels of scale and complexity, lots of industries, finance, education, health, uh, and you're right, it's very much hands-on. Um, I'm wary of using the word engineer because I try to surround myself with people who do that better than I do. I think um, I live at the intersection of evolving business needs new business models, transformations, and emerging technologies and how you use them, which is very much how I've arrived at this focus on next generation data platforms, particularly in the cloud, um, and why I think it's, it's such a good time to talk about it. Excellent. Well, what I want to do is go through my uh, kind of basic framework and then use that as a launching point to the framework that you have constructed uh, based in, in, on your last couple of startups and, sure. and your, your, your general experience and also new technology developments. So the way I think of you know, what's going on today is that uh, you know, ultimately uh, uh, people are being asked to deliver what I call data products, which are you know, data that is uh, well curated, well organized, it's, it, it has some semantic model, it has a user interface, you know, and that, could, that user interface could be through you know, products like Click or, or Tableau mm -hmm. or, or, or open source versions of those like Superset. And then it has a data model that's well understood and it has a variety of analytics that are being presented. And then that data product is, is what is being presented to the users and is used in the context of a business. Now to create that data product, that's where you need a modern data architecture. Um, the way I think of that, the layers underneath that is that you, at the, at the first layer that you have is the landed data, where you are taking data from a variety of sources and then you land it somewhere. You then obviously can be doing data engineering before you land it, and then once it's landed you can do a variety of transformations in whatever repository you have. Now the, after the landed data, you then do some sort of transformation and you create reusable data objects. Now this is what I call the model data. Now the model data is about crafting the data, cleaning it up, integrating it for a particular purpose. Now the model data may have many layers of models because you might have a canonical customer record, a canonical product record, uh, uh, some other you know, type of records that are intended to be reused widely. 
And then on top of those, you may have you know, reusable records for a certain you know, use case. And then on top of those, you may have use case specific. And that's the last level, level which I call the purpose-built data, where you take the model data and craft it for a specific purpose. Now, in through, through this, you have a variety of different ETL processes. Usually the ETL from the landed data to the model data is a little simpler. And the, the, the model data to the purpose-built data is even simpler. I sometimes call that last mile ETL. And the more you can make this all self-service, the better. And so what's been happening is that this has changed from an environment where all of this process that I talk about happened inside a data warehouse to a new uh, architecture in which the landed data may be an entire repository of object storage, or it may be a relatively unformed repository like a data lake. Uh, and then the model data can be in, inside these new uh, platforms that are being created just to handle this sort of layer. Uh, one that comes to mind is Dremio, where you can bring in data from lots of different sources and then create and, and, and allow the users to transform it and to create uh, a model to data format, which also has a catalog and has governance and it has um, uh, lineage and things like that. Podium data, which was bought by Click, it, it, you know, provides that. And then there's a variety of other products. And then that allows the users to create the purpose-built data that can either be used inside the platform or delivered to a Click, a Tableau, a superset on the outside. Now, when we talked about this last time, this, this, this architecture um, brought up a variety of responses from you and that your idea of a modern data architecture was a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, I think I would, I would start by stepping back just a little bit um, and talking about what are the reasons why we institute this architecture? Why don't we just keep doing what we've always done? What's driving the change? Because I think that that's then reflected in each of the choices that show up in the evolution of data lakes and these types of architectures. And I, I think it's primarily, it's a reflection of a couple things. One is the number of data sources that an enterprise needs to consult to answer business critical questions is greatly increasing. It used to be that to answer the question of how many widgets did we make, how many did we sell, where did we sell them, you had your in-house custom app or you had your ERP system, whatever it was, there was maybe one source of truth. But increasingly, the questions that we want answers to, which is really what we use data for, it's to answer questions, whether it's a predictive model or a straightforward ad hoc analysis. Those questions are depending upon data that's increasingly distributed. Modern enterprises leverage SaaS applications that they don't own or control, they subscribe to. So you're, if you're using identity management from an Auth0 or an Okta, you can query their, their APIs to pull that data. You may want to correlate those logins with something else in your internal apps. You may use various help desk and issue tracking software, etc. So it's no longer simply the case that you put a bunch of engineers working on your internal system to push that data into a warehouse. You need to be able to pull from lots of systems which have different types of interfaces, different characteristics, etc. That's one. A second is the nature of the questions that we're asking as an enterprise and the 
the time in which we need to evolve those questions is much shorter. So there are more types of questions, which are, can we make a prediction? Can we look at a time series? Can we spot anomalies? It's no longer just what's the total? What was the total yesterday? What's the total last week? Um, but those questions are evolving quickly because businesses are having to respond to changes in the market quickly. So we need something that can evolve answers faster. Um, and then I think the scale of the data is getting much larger because we're able to get so much more fine-grained data. Our analytics, like if you have a, an analytics um, enhanced product that's throwing off even user tracking, and those users are having sessions, you have a ton of data. It could be a real-time event stream of data. Without the tools that are in the cloud or open source you know, platforms like Kinesis that you've set up and run in a cluster that can scale, it's a big lift to do this. So the kinds of architectures we're evolving towards, and these new architectures where I think both you and I see very similarly is, these are tools to provide relevant, meaningful, timely answers to core enterprise business questions, but they are operating in a new world with far more data, far more complex data sources, et cetera. Those things all inform the elements that have evolved. And so when we talk about a landing area for the data, <clears throat> really what we're talking about is a place that regardless of where it's coming from, it all comes to one place, which really matters when it's coming from half a dozen or a dozen sources. Um, and then the, the next layer of transitions, that initial set of transformations, which we think of as sort of cleaning governance, you might be filtering out PII or sensitive data. Um, these are all ways of, of essentially uh, commoditizing the data, regularizing, well, and normalizing. Productizing is the word I use. That's even better, productizing. Because what you're doing is you're saying, again, it's a, it's a distributed solution. Older warehouses were typically point to point. Today, a more distributed system means you have a lot greater variability on your inputs. Some inputs need to be cleaned, some need to be secured, whatever it is. Uh, and you, you get the efficiencies, you get those economic benefits by leveraging those investments in a consistent platform across all the different sources and all the different analyses. So I would say landing zone, initial transformation to productize it, and exactly as you said, I would agree. There's a progression from data that's closer to how you found it in the source to data that's closer to the analysis you want to use. And ultimately, the last step is the analysis, which is what you want to use. One of the most important concepts, I think, in modern data architecture is the transition from what is referred to as schema on write to schema on read. Uh, schema on write is a traditional SQL warehouse where you have decided up front what is the schema in this relational database that is your warehouse. Because once you've decided that, the cost of changing it is significant. Um, one of the big promises and benefits of the modern data architectures is a schema on read, which means instead of having to get it right up front, which as we all know is impossible, requirements change, businesses change, markets change. Scheme on read allows us to pay a small incremental cost when we use the data to transform it to the schema that we need at that time. Right, and so this is, this essentially 
requires a some sort of object storage where you can just store a piece of data without having to say anything about its structure. Then what what the, the interesting thing about that is then it if in order to make the object storage useful, you have to be able to project a model on top of it. And this is really uh, where I think uh, there's a lot of innovation going on right now. Um, the, uh, some, there's a variety of products that are aimed at object storage and creating that layer where you can manage the structure of the object storage in, a, in an organized way. But you have developed a variety of methods where you don't like to do that. You don't like to be locked into a product. Yeah. Uh, you'd rather create that structure in a way that's more independent of any product. Now, and you use open source tools to do that. That's one of the most interesting aspects of what you've built in your most recent startups that, I, that I'd like to just explore a little bit. Sure, thanks. Um, I would just say that, the, again, the motivations for that are, um, it's very, it's a risk. It's a risk factor. Um, and I think it's one of those risks that people make without understanding that they're making. So, for instance, there are ETL products and BI products and other things which will allow you to express that model that you're referring to, which is describe to me the shape of the data that you want in their product. Is it okay to name names? I'll yeah, yeah, please right. do. Yeah. So if you look at Looker, Looker uses LookML to represent this kind of data organization data. No, and, and to, to use the terms we've been using before, for Looker to work, the landed data is actually uh, inside of a SQL data. Yeah, it's already several steps in. You've yeah. already rectangularized that data, yeah. although they can point it non. But then, but then they, you're right, what they're doing is they're creating the model data using LookML. It, which is their proprietary language. And my concern is that that expression of a model is a critical intellectual property asset of the enterprise. It's a critical piece of the product development, data product development process. And it needs to be free and clear, open, transparent, portable, versioned, governed. And those are, those are aspirations within the data world because you know, in the software engineering world, we have a lot of processes and tools that have evolved over the past decades to support the versioning, the governance, the enforcement, etc. Um, but those are coming in data as well, and you can see them. And so I'm very uncomfortable uh, taking the convenience of putting it into a product without fully understanding what you're giving up down the line. Now, let's just talk about the variations in, in, in that uh, layer, the modeling layer. Now, the idea of Looker is that, what the way Looker works is that LookML actually is treated like source code. Yeah. So it, it goes in a source code repository, it can be versioned, it can be controlled and uh, in that way. Now there are a variety of other modeling environments where it's much less uh, uh, like code, it's much more of one instance of whatever it is and it's much less managed, where it's like a, either a visual representation or a domain specific language. Uh, you know that that you use to, to do this right. work, I, I don't, um, and I don't mean to pick to pick on Looker. In fact, I've, it's been over a year or so since I checked the state of of Looker ML. I did notice that they were that they were supporting versioning of it. Uh, it's just that 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 piece is such an important piece 
in the rest of your data platform that it feels like one of the core assets that you want to own and control. So, so how do you build that in a way that achieves the goals for it that you, you mentioned? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, I'm going to be totally honest. We are still trying different things. Uh, it represents a significant investment on the part of an enterprise both to do the work to figure out what those model representations should be, to choose an open structured platform for expressing them, uh, and then to evolve and maintain them over time. Some of those costs you pay whether you use a third-party product or not. Uh, you know, check back in six months and right. I think I'll have some good well, answers. Well, so now there are a variety of different you know, I, approaches. I, I, no, no, no. I'll, I'll just answer and say, in the past, we have been expressing them within source code but in a sort of a, a declarative or functional paradigm using languages like Python and Java uh, in ways that both express it descriptively, so it's approaching data, um, but is versioned and managed through the engineering process. So it's like, not ideal. So you wouldn't have exactly a separate declarative language, but the subroutines and the, 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 the you would have a, a, a use of, of, of a variety of subroutines and functions that would be close mm -hmm. to it. So actually we have what we've done, so in the case where we've implemented in, uh, in functional Java, we've essentially defined a fluent way of expressing those. So you are describing the target model, where it comes from, how it's transformed, et cetera, in a way that is essentially a little language. It's a little domain-specific language implemented in Java. So you get the benefits of all the things with being in the code. It's processable. Once it's processed, it constructs objects in memory. Those objects are a graph, a data graph that you operate on. Those can be represented and, and uh, materialized in a form of uh, JSON or YAML or other persistent formats. I think that's, that's a logical step. To me, it's, the specific implementation is not as important as the fact that you are describing these transformations. Got it. And, you, and they're, they're abstract in that they can be rendered in other different right. codes. That's because the real news. The bad place is when it is living, it's like the old thing with stored procedures. If your critical business logic is living in PL SQL in an Oracle stored procedure, how are you going to know where it is, who changed it, versioned it, etc.? You want to make sure that these things, which turn out to be really valuable over the lifetime of your data product, are known, managed, cataloged, versioned, accessible. So you just don't want some well-intentioned data engineer to just write some Python code that lives in a script somewhere. It does this. Now, what would your problem be with something like one of these ETL platforms like Talent or, or uh, SyncSort or Attunity where you could express the transformations uh, from the landed data to the model data uh, uh, in uh, an abstract way where we, with any of those products you can, you know, if you can read the data from Hadoop, you can read the data from Spark, you can read the data from object storage, and then you can, you know, pump the data out to wherever you want as well. So you're, you're, you're achieving some level of abstraction, but you're actually tying yourself to a product in, in doing so. Yeah, and I, they may actually be the right answer. All I'm really arguing for is uh, an analytical approach to selecting them. So there are too many of them out there, and they're evolving too quickly for us to keep on top of what everyone does. So every time you and I talk, I come away with a list of good names to go check out, and I try to get current with those ones I don't know about. But ultimately, when we are trying to solve a problem, we do a quick criteria-based analysis. We try to do a criteria-based analysis that says, 
cost, lock-in, performance, security, governance constraints, whatever the things are that determine it, um, and for a given context, a given organization may or may not want to go that path. Ultimately, we're all taking lock-in. Every time I, put, I take advantage of some easy API at AWS, I'm getting a little further locked in. You just want to make your, your bets should be informed by having as conscious as possible a process that gets you there. So these commercial products in the right context are the right answer because you're leveraging the investment, the capital investment they've made to solve this problem. If you're in their sweet 80% use case spot, go to town. And then later, if you need to get out, you pay the, the price to re-code, but it would have been a good business case. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so now you haven't supported yet in some of your startup world the world in which you have this massive data landscape that is, got, uh, that is serving a lot of separate people through a data catalog. Yeah. Um, uh, but you are now starting to struggle with that problem. And so I'd just like to ask you, shifting gears a little sure. bit, once you built the data product, then you have to allow people to, to find it and then also to adjust it if they need to. What have you noticed about what's going on in the current marketplace that, that is helpful and what is missing? Yeah, and uh, you know, you've described it exactly, which is the value of the data lake or whatever your data platform is called uh, is directly related to the ability to find what you need in it to construct some new analysis to generate business value. That finding in the most naive implementation is you ask other human beings, hey, do you know where to find X? Obviously that approach has a lot of downsides. So the introduction of a concept of a data catalog is something more structured, more persistent, more shared, more accurate, more performant than just asking the people you know. Um, in the beginning, you know, we wrote data catalogs as uh, structured files in GitHub. We've written them as wiki pages in Confluence. Mod Binder at, um, uh, at, at uh, Warby Parker, I believe they use wiki books oh, for their uh, yeah, very their data catalog. Right. Um, we have done some experiments using essentially uh, documentation generators from uh, attribute. Uh, attributes embedded in source code. So uh, I think there are a lot of ways to get there. The, my instinct says that the hardest part is keeping the data catalog up to date. And so um, to the extent that you can actually generate that data catalog out of those expressions of the model and the transformations, I think would be ideal because you're, you have the, the lowest additional cost and the lowest delta between what's documented and what actually exists. Um, we haven't yet settled on a good tool for that. I think it's a pretty ripe area for product development. I'm sure that you know of folks who are doing that. We hear of a couple things. Um, but the other truth is that up to a certain scale of organization, there's usually a small number of people who today are responsible for the translation of new business needs into analyses and use of the data. And so the scale at which those requests are being handled and new analyses are being created is still manageable by a small group of people who are sharing information in a more ad hoc manner. So you've got institutional knowledge, you've got instant messaging channels like Slack, you've got wikis, and so it's 
It's definitely you create way. a tribal knowledge, a common understanding. It is, and a, right, e e even yeah. though the answer is John will tell you about that. That's fine. It works. Yeah, and I think where you'll see the the accelerated evolution of those metadata catalogs is when there are powerful tools that leverage those to shorten the time and cost to delivering a new analysis. So if I can start with a hypothesis and say, I'm breaking the hypothesis down, I need this set of data elements. Imagine a tool that hits the catalog, finds things, says, this looks like what we're after. How do you want to assemble this? And instead of my having to go into a BI tool, it's essentially pre-generating some output. I think that's going to drive the adoption of catalogs, things like that. Well, now, I'd like to build on the idea of what's in the catalog in, in, in reference to some of the work I know that you've done in some recent, uh, yeah. recent startups you've been involved in. Uh, and, um, could be better. Yeah, well, <laughs> always could be better. Always, well, here's the, here's the thing that I think, think is really exciting. I recently wrote an article called Our Semantics, oops, Our Semantics the Undead of Enterprise Software. And basically, I posit that like a zombie, the idea of actually using formal semantics against data to actually describe the structural, you know, the meaning of that data is an idea that just never goes away, keeps coming back over and over again. It started right after the dawn of the web. Tim Berners-Lee himself, uh, you know, was very, very excited about the prospects of the semantic web. Lots of people did a lot of work, and out of that work was created, you know, the semantic standards of RDF and OWL. And, uh, and I've been recently, working with some companies like Cambridge Semantics or Neo4j, yeah, they are the right. who uh, have uh, been applying uh, graph models to data and also semantic models on top of graph models to data. Now, what I wanted to ask you is, mm -hmm. it seems like part of the things you achieved at your last startup was that you were able to divorce the data from the semantics and have actually a semantic descriptive layer that was uh, that was driving the behavior of the system and uh, would allow you to point both a transformation program and a set of semantics at a data source and then out of that you would get the data that you wanted into the canonical model without having to rewrite that program every time. Yeah. And to what extent do you believe that was semantically driven, that you had a formal semantic model there? Uh, it's such a it's such a rich set of questions you're you're touching on, um, and I love this topic. Uh, I think it's helpful to make a distinction between analytical contexts in which your data already is semantically clear. So the f I'm just thinking, and I'm sure this will come back to bite me, but I'm thinking Spotify analytics, playlists, who played them, how long, how long they've been, etc. Like those are pretty cut and dried, single source they, inside Spotify, I'm sure someone somewhere can get an authoritative answer on whatever the question is. But if you had access to playlists across multiple services, Spotify, Apple, whoever else, the, the semantics of each of those different enterprises would be slightly different. And in order to make valid and valuable analyses across that combined data set, you would need to regularize the meanings of those semantics. So in my last startup at the credit junction, 
we had financial data reported from lots of different businesses using lots of different accounting packages. And the meanings of assets and liabilities and at a finer grain level of invoices and inventory differed tremendously from business to business and report to report. So in order for us to be able to take advantage of the kind of data platform ability to make cost efficient, fast, evolutionary analytics, we had to regularize them. I love your, your suggestion of Berners-Lee's semantic web, semantic ontologies within data sets, because whether we explicitly get to OWL and RDF or not, that's the same idea. We're saying to operate on a set of data, it must be consistent, or our answers are not going to be consistent. When your data comes from disparate sources, and those sources even can be within the same enterprise, you have to regularize them, which means you need you need a uh, you need a stone or is that a stone that lets you map between them? Well, now here's where I want to challenge you, and that is when we talked earlier about the ETL rules. You know, you said it's much better to have them be abstract, and so now it seems like that the semantics are that same level of abstraction. If you can uh, posit against a set of data uh, a set of semantics, you are now separating a lot of that stuff that, 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 that meaning that is normally embedded in code. Uh, and so you can, you, can, uh, you can have the code be less bound to the programmer's understanding of that field name, and uh, uh, and and, and um, you can have uh, a, a a description that is at a, at a higher level. Um, now, there it's it's a hard. It's, I think one of the reasons that semantics hasn't caught on is it's it's really hard to find the situations where this is really valuable. Well, well. So let's take this. There are there's an emerging set of. Uh, of these around things like XBRL, which is um, an XML representation of business reporting, um, or FIBO, which is a financial information uh, business objects, I think if I'm getting it right, out of the OMG. So they're emerging because if you think about it, for publicly traded companies, we want them all to report using consistent structure. We shouldn't have to plow through the 10K by hand and pay an analyst to go extract numbers. So I, I want to go back to your point because I think it's a great one. It's not that uh, you, you do have to separate and make trade-offs. Um, to get to a normalized model, you are either choosing a least common denominator or you're making certain interpolations or adjustments to the data to fit that model. You're going to change both of those things over time. You're going to evolve your model and you're going to change what you're extracting from your sources. Modern data platforms, in my mind, expose the economics of each of those changes over time in ways that they are both incremental, so they're faster, they're cheaper, and they're more transparent, as opposed to it all just living in some big hairy block of ETL code that reads your source app and implicitly does all these things and produces a, a schema in a data warehouse. In that one step are implicitly all the things that we're breaking out and saying, oh, you're connecting to a data source. How do we want to do that? Well, it turns out there are a bunch of great open source ETL solutions for connecting to all different types of data sources. Let's use those instead of writing our own code. 
next thing you're doing. You are normalizing the model of the data. You're renaming it. You're cleaning it. How are you doing that? Well, it looks like there are a bunch of different ways to structure and package those tasks, to run them in parallel across a cluster of nodes, to capture... Right. You can write Python code, you can use Talon, exactly. you can do a But by, by doing it means that if you're now thinking as an organization, even the subset of your organization that deals with this data platform, you can now respond to change, new requirements, other opportunities, in a way that is, you have a new language. Your language says, oh, we don't have to go deal with that big, scary, custom-built ETL pile of code, we actually understand that there is a, an engineered process with a discrete unit of work that lets us adjust the transformation to get a little bit more resolution out. Or maybe there's new resolution available from that data source. Maybe to take advantage of that resolution, we still have to do some aggregation function to it. But the place where you're doing that is very, it's discrete, it's controlled, it's managed. And similarly, each of those places so that by the time you get to your semantics, you, can, you not only have confidence in them, and this goes back to the catalog, part of the function of the catalog is to provide that provenance, the, the lineage of the data. Where did it come from? How do you trace back from your last mile model and say, okay, why should I trust that this is the revenue per customer? How do I know that? Where did this come from? And obviously this is what I meant when I said there's always more we could do because that kind of visibility and traceability, you know, if you have a number for this customer for this period of time, month of May, this customer, customer number 0001, produce this amount of revenue. CFO is gonna look at it and say, okay, so tell me again why I should trust this number because I've got some other reports over here that suggest maybe that's out of the ballpark. You wanna be able to, from that, automatically trace back to the source data and all the transformations that were done. That's So that's in, in other sense, I mean, what you're saying is that you want to have a pipeline that has as many different stages in it that can, can separate the work into to natural separate natural groups so that if it comes time to change something you can you're changing it within a smaller group a smaller object right. you know and, and then my my vision of the semantics is that it's toward the end of that pipeline that you're starting to you have a model and then the semantics are describing the relationships between the data in that model so you can start making inferences yes. about uh, if I know you're, you know, you have two children, then I know that two children of the same parent are siblings. Yes. You know, so, so that, that I didn't, that's not in the data anywhere, it's, but, it's, it, but it's in the semantics. With the caveat that my real world experience shows over and over and over again, that when you get to the point of having that in your model and you want to make that inference, you discover just where the weak spots, the gaps, the inconsistencies in the source, in, in how you got to that data live. And then it's a process of going back and either improving the source, improving the transformations. The two other reasons, it's not just that I, I wanna split them all out. I'm splitting them out for very specific reasons. I'm splitting them out because there are now open source commercial products that commoditize the delivery of that functionality. So. ETL or ELT, like, there's no reason I should, I'm right. irresponsible if I write this. You, so you, you, you want productization, you, it's just that you I want do. it in a, in a natural scope. I do, and I'm being irresponsible if I'm sitting down and writing something cool when there are cheaper, more reliable, more mature uh, 
solutions out there, which is what's happening in that ecosystem. At every level we're talking about, notably there's some that are less well represented, like metadata catalogs, particularly at the, at the front end. Um, that's, the, that's another reason. So you're breaking it out to be able to focus on it appropriately and reduce the incremental cost and increase the, the management of the risk. You're also breaking it out because you can now leverage existing solutions in the ecosystem, open source and commercial. And third, they are almost all, all the ones that I'm aware of and thinking about, run in the cloud. And so your ability to cost-effectively scale reliably scale and apply all the tools that we've learned from migration to the cloud to this problem is extremely compelling. I do know people who load up, you know, crazy number of GPUs on their, their computers and they run stuff that gets so hot you could fry an egg on it to build models. Right, they're the outliers. For most of the rest of us, we're going to spin up a bunch of SageMaker or whatever else in the cloud, and we're going to do what we need. We're going to shut it down and stop paying for it. That's really compelling. Got it. Now, to what extent have you seen this architecture actually in practice you know, blossom and provide value? Because the theory is that you should be able to present a data product to a large group of users, and that data product should be well understood and well documented enough, and if you give them the tools, to do whatever manipulations they can handle, they will then stop living inside of spreadsheets uh, and start living in a, in a, in a world you know, that is more centralized where more work can be shared. But it's, it's harder to come by than examples of that really working than it is to, you know, the, the, yeah. the theory is compelling, but the practice is really hard to, hard to, to see come out. I think you're totally right, and, and you and I both earned our gray hairs by learning this lesson the hard way. Uh, the promise of technology is always greater than what it can deliver in the time frame everybody thinks it's going to deliver. It takes longer. Uh, I would actually argue the long-term impact is greater than we anticipate, but it takes a lot longer. Um, in this case, I would focus on certain very specific benefits that I've observed. Um, I do just want to say I'm pretty sure the day that we pry the spreadsheets out of the hands of the business users is the same day our new machine overlords give us new job titles. <laughs> so uh, it's not that we're going to replace those, but I think you shift certain ones out into the cloud. And in fact, the most successful migrations of analyses that I've experienced directly from what was done on a desktop spreadsheet to a cloud data platform are the ones where that spreadsheet was what ran a chunk of the business. There was compelling business case, at which point you now have a really clear um, specification for what the analysis is, as opposed to someone saying, hey, right. could we look at, and you also have a very compelling business case in terms of human effort, typically expert human effort, which is expensive. So you say, how often are we updating this? How many people are updating it? If we could automate that down, so things that take a couple hours for a human well, a couple of humans take a couple seconds. That begins to pay for a fair amount. Well, no, and, and uh, going back to Lon Binder and Warby Parker again, I wrote about uh, a story about his transformation, which was really fascinating, where they had they were running the entire business on spreadsheets that would extract data from their ERP system, and then do a variety of uh, transformations on them using VLOOKUPs and things like that. And eventually, it got to the point where the spreadsheets could no longer process in the time allotted, 
the data and they would all they would break often yeah. and, 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 and so what it became necessary to do was to take and move that into a data warehouse and, and they used Looker to do that. Now the problem was that when as soon as they started doing that, they found that there was a spreadsheet in customer service that identified the customer one way, a spreadsheet yeah. in finance that identified the customer another way, a spreadsheet in marketing, and each one of them had a very rational definition of the customer. But different. Yes, the, the customer in, 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 the finance customer was everybody that we paid money to. Now that could be somebody that isn't a user of the product because they bought a gift certificate. You know, the, 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 the customer, service customer could also be not a, pro, not a customer because they might have be on a free trial. Uh, and so, they, had, they realized they had to create a, a new semantics of, uh, so that they could describe very clearly the different customers that would, needed to be used inside the data warehouse so that then when they had a report, you could say, oh, this is the finance customer or this is the customer service customer. I, I think that's a good example of when you had such a clear and compelling business case that it justified the considerable investment to do that work, because that's painful work inside an enterprise. Because you now have different tribes who have their own definitions, you're going to get them all to, to either speak the same language or agree to a transformation to a normalized model. A lot of mistakes that we've seen are where people try to do that work without the compelling business case, at which point they're kind of doomed to failure because it's going to be painful, it's going to be expensive, and what it produces isn't going to have clear and compelling business value. Right. Wouldn't it be great if we did all this? Without knowing whether all this is actually you know, going to make right. a difference, we could we could do a whole we could do a whole podcast just on what are the good and what are the wrong justifications for going down this path. But let's assume that, like Lon, you have a very compelling need to understand a unified view of revenue across your business. At that point, you are going to look at the different spreadsheets as a source of truth for that local data. And you can figure out how do you translate that source of truth into an enterprise-wide source of truth for that data. That, again, is part of what that metadata catalog and the provenance is so essential for. You have to have traceability because there will be questions that are going to come up. And it's, it's just part of, it's part of the cost. Good. Now, in your consulting practice right now, you are focused, it seems like, on every engagement over and over and building this modern data platform. What, what, when, when you come into a client and they ask, Dan, you know, what should we be doing? Uh, how, how do you uh, uh, explain to them the value of what you, you're building when, you're, when, when a modern data platform is the right choice? Yeah, I think anytime you have to convince somebody of the value of making a change, you're in trouble. So really what I'm doing is I am, I'm listening. And there are a couple of couple simple questions. You say, do you have business critical decisions that you need to make that depend on understanding data from a combination of systems, some of which might be yours and some of which might be third parties that you use on a subscription basis? Are you able to pull that data together today? Are you able to run the analyses you need? Is the time required and the cost of doing that acceptable or is it limiting the business from responding to opportunities and challenges? I mean, that's a question I'm, I love asking CEOs that because, as you can guess, I have yet 
to meet a CEO or a CTO or a COO who says, oh yeah, I can get answers whatever I want, whenever I want, as often as I want, as cheap as I want. It's never going to happen. So the degree to which they have a pain point there and say, I am subject to regulatory reporting and I am spending one and a half full-time equivalent salaries per month building these regulatory reports. And all they're doing is da, 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 going and logging into this system here, copying and pasting right. these numbers. They're re-keying manually because, I mean, you know, those kind of stories. That's a, that's a pain point at which, now does that one pain point equal the need for a modern data platform? It might, it might not. But if you talk about it and they have several other situations that leverage some of the same data in a bank, some of it could be their core banking system. It feeds regulatory reporting, but it also feeds customer profitability calculations. It could feed lots of things. You start to see this concentration of potential business value that you can unlock if you can make the data available, make the evolution of new analysis cost-effective and fast. And if it doesn't require PhD level data scientists to do so, then you got a shot at doing it. There are things that those PhD data scientists should be doing with that data, but most organizations are not ready to get there. Right. That's a, that's a, that's a longer term. So the truth is, for most, there's a lot of low hanging fruit that honestly, getting the data and being able to run basic rectangular queries against unified data with confidence that the data is right yields tremendous value. Right. The idea is you don't need to do an AI ML data science implementation. You need to do, you need to finish your data warehouse implementation yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and, and do a good job of it. And then that provides the foundation. It does because what then happens is once, uh, you know, I think a friend of mine uh, ran RDS at Amazon Web Services for years and when he first took the job and he's one of the smartest most experienced technology leaders I know he was overwhelmed he was sitting at his desk looking at he said there was something like 10,000 data points that got reported to him every 10,000 different metrics or something that were reported to him every morning and he said his job was to figure out which four of them really mattered and once he did he started to drive his business off it so that's a business that already has the data available. You can get the data. Now he's doing the real work, which is deciding what matters. He's building hypotheses. Once he starts to nail those, he, I don't know the tools he had internally, but then you can start to get to machine learning to develop predictive models where you say, okay, we've been running our business by this set of metrics. We know they're the right ones, but now we want to understand what changes could we make that would affect these outcomes? That's where you start to put the data scientists to work. Got it. Well, Dan, this has been a wide-ranging conversation, as I expect it to be. Again, this is the Designing Enterprise Platforms podcast from Early Adopter Research. And we were talking with Dan Seltzer, who is a CTO of Note and uh, has really helped share a lot of really good ideas about the modern data platform, modern data architecture. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. It's always a pleasure.